You're listening to episode 169 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. I wanted to say a special thanks to those of you who have taken the time to pre-order The Five Masculine Instincts. I've been really encouraged by the response and I'm excited that we're just almost a month away from its release. In today's episode, we're going to uh, continue our conversation. Peter Ostopko interviewed me about the book, and in today's episode, we talk specifically about the five instincts, where they came from, uh, how I recognize them, not only in the men I know, but also in the men of the Bible, how we connected biblical men with these instincts. And we also talk about how we should properly read the stories of biblical men and women. Are they heroes? Do we model our life after them? I think this will be a really helpful conversation for how you think about instincts, but also how you read the Bible and think about the men and the women in those stories. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm back with Peter, and we're uh, working on a conversation now on chapter two of the book, The Five Masculine Instincts, and uh, thanks for a good introductory conversation. And uh, chapter two gives us an opportunity to really start digging into what are the five instincts? Where yeah. did they come from? Um, so I'm happy to hear questions you had or thoughts from the chapter as well. Yeah. So I just, I mean, I guess my primary question is, how did you settle on the five? I'm sure that wasn't an easy process. So how did you settle on those five? You know, it's interesting. This book actually originally started um, with me writing on Samson. Yeah. And I recognized in myself in my 20s, early 30s, but particularly a lot of the young men I was pastoring, a kind yeah. of restlessness, yeah. a need for adventure to try yep. to find my identity and who I was and feeling in ways held back by commitment and tradition. And seeing in Samson those same kind of impulses, I didn't yeah. have the instinct language at the time, but recognizing, oh, Samson's wrestling with some of that same restlessness. Yeah. Um, and then I started thinking about other men in my congregation. And yeah. look, that need for adventure characterizes some, but I have other men who are really career oriented and yeah. I have other men who are entering retirement years. And I see some of the, the tensions that puts on their faith or trying sure. to work out who I am and the value of my faith when I'm not working or producing. Yeah. And so I started recognizing there really are these kind of instincts or these narratives that a man moves through in his life that yeah. characterize a lot of the way he's framing what's important, the way that he's yeah. framing decisions. And it was about that time I came across uh, Shakespeare's uh, seven stages of a man. It comes from that, that famous line, all of world, all of the world is a stage and each man and woman has their entrance and ex exits, plays their individual parts. And Shakespeare goes on to describe, uh, seven stages of a man's life. And immediately yeah. I started to recognize, oh, this is that, that thing that I've been sort of stumbling on. Sure. Shakespeare, of course, already laid this all out. Yeah. Um, and the reason it got down to five was Shakespeare opens those seven stages with the infant being born. Yeah. And he makes the point that the infant is born helpless and crying and into a, a nurse's arms. So somebody has to care for it. And the seventh stage, which for Shakespeare is the stage of death, yeah. he says that uh, the man begins to lose his eyesight and his hearing and his teeth and is again dependent on a nurse until everything yeah. ends. And he's trying to make this sort of like circular logic to is the way we come into this world helpless, yeah. we leave helpless, yeah. which highlights the way men then in these middle stages yeah. – are intentionally grasping onto instincts and narratives to try to live. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, real quickly, if you read the book, th that's where the five instincts come from or from okay. those middle five. Yeah. So in the first one, Shakespeare describes the reluctant schoolboy who's sort yeah. of dragging himself yep. to school. And for me, that became associated with sarcasm, which of course we'll get into when we get to that chapter as well. 
the second one is the 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 lover, the woeful lover who's yep. constantly being thwarted in all of his affections and desires, which became uh, that idea of romantic sort of conquest, and the, the search for love and yep. new landscapes became Samson's story, that yep. impulse, that desire for adventure. Then the third stage that he describes is the warrior who's who's full of oaths and quick to quarrel, which is really describing in Shakespeare's stage a man who's passionate for something of meaning, of yeah. purpose, of, yeah. of going out and conquering and building and accomplishing something, which really quickly I recognized in Moses' story and sure. became that third instinct of ambition that yeah. so many men know well. And then uh, the next one is Shakespeare starts to talk about. It's funny he has a line in the the that fourth one about how the man begins to put on weight. <laughs> he actually begins to get a little bigger. I don't know what and you're he, talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, this tells you which stage we're in. And he uh, he starts the phrase Shakespeare uses is that he starts to play the part expected of him. Yeah. That he, he gets to enough success in life. That all of a sudden his reputation starts to matter. He starts to understand who he's supposed to be and how he earns more of that reputation and how he protects the success that he has. And really, in so many ways, that's David's story, not the early David. But if you pay close attention to David's story, you see him wrestling with this tension between external reality and internal reality and this test of integrity, which really becomes this instinct for reputation, protecting reputation. And then the final one is, uh, it's really the retired stage in, in yeah. Shakespeare's play, but the man ends up in his sort of, uh, in his slippers and he ends up knocking around the house and he's more interested in his hobbies than what's going on outside. Yeah. Uh, and it's this tendency we all have as men, not just in old age, sometimes it comes about through disillusionment or discouragement, but uh, the line Shakespeare uses is the world is too wide. Um, we come to a point as men where we just feel like, there's too much complexity and yeah. there's too much out of our control. And we content ourselves to sort of our little hobbies or our own little worlds, our yep. recliner and TV. Yep. And it's this instinct of apathy, just yep. easier, just not to care, not to get involved. And I saw in that um, yeah. a real test from Abraham's life sure. where that apathy starts to set in and God, by his grace, tries to pull him out of it. Yeah. But those five instincts, sarcasm, uh, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy, yep. they really are drawn pretty deeply from yep. Shakespeare's seven stages of a man. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned each of the biblical character, um, with the exception of the first one, which is Samson. Uh, the very first Cain. one is Cain. Cain. Yeah, that's right. That's so Cain. Sarcasm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no, it's, it's unpacked really, really well. Let me ask you this, because when we read, most of us, you know, we've read the children's stories and, you know, adaptations, you know, we're reading it with our kids and, you know, the story of David and Goliath and, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea. And so we've heard kind of the similar narrative throughout our lives. You've taken a bit of an alternative approach in the way that we view these characters. And I love it. You know, it's it's something refreshing. And, I, and again, I think you're keeping the integrity of what the scripture is. But you take a different viewpoint and perspective about how we view these characters. And you talked a little bit about that. But tell me why you did that. Because it's... It is not, that is not the common conversation. And why did you choose to do it this way? Yeah, part of that's just the way I, I read scripture as well. So it's bigger than just this book. It yeah. wasn't like a strategy for how to handle So if we don't like it, we here. can just blame it all on you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I did it wrong. That's probably true. No, um, no, so, you know, what's interesting is when it comes to the way we've tended to use the biblical characters and in the context you use, um, like telling these stories to my kids, I've got, both of us have young kids. I have yeah. a son, you've got a son. Yeah. Um, 
it's easy to think like, oh, these are his male role models for being a sort of God-focused or Christian man. Like, look, there's David and his battle with lust. And then there's Moses, his lessons of leadership. And then there's Abraham's perseverance of faith and uh, Noah's ability to stand against the tide of culture. And yeah. um, we, we paint them as heroes, which to be sure, they do have heroic moments. Sure. But if uh, take Samson as an example. Like oftentimes Samson's look at his strength and sure he has to fight his battles with lust, but ultimately he triumphs in this sort of heroic moment where he destroys the enemy and God empowers him with the strength to do it. It's easy to turn it into a like, be like Samson narrative. But if you imagine like an Israelite dad laying down at night and telling his kids before they go to bed, the Samson story, that's a strange bedtime story and a strange story to say, be like Samson. I mean, most of us, I would say to my son, just don't be like Samson, right? Like, like don't, but is the goal then these are all anti-heroes? Yeah. Well, it gets more complicated because in, in other cultures, the way that the ancient Greeks or the Romans told stories and the way that they inspired character development within their kids growing up, the yeah. way that they produced men was they created masculine role models, heroes. Yeah. They yeah. have Hector and Achilles and you looked at their lives and you said, this is who you, this is the pinnacle of who we can be as Greeks and yeah. how you could do it. You should live into this. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a famous book on literature called Mimesis who writes about different storytelling throughout the centuries and they specifically talk about how unique the Hebrew people were in their approach to storytelling in the ancient world, because they did not create these sort of idealized demigod heroes for men to follow. But they give us these very, very normal human characters in extraordinary situations. But oftentimes um, people who struggle with the same sort of broken humanity we do. And in the book, it says that instead of courting your favor, instead of making you sort of like idolize these characters, what the Hebrew storytellers do is they actually expose us and mm. our humanity through the biblical characters. And the way I talk about it in the book is it's better to see them less as heroes and more as companions. Yeah. That what these characters do is they expose your tendencies, yeah. your instincts. Yeah. And they also do expose how those same instincts can lead you to destruction yeah. or by God's grace can be matured into something that yeah. becomes beneficial and at times heroic and bigger than something we're capable yeah. of on our own. But if you, if you read them as sort of flannel graph stock characters for like lust, strength, yeah. perseverance, yeah. Uh, I think you miss the real depth yeah. of the psychological depth, the human depth of, of these men and the real yeah. lessons they offer for us, which is a more painful reading that exposes our own tendencies, our own yeah. instincts. You know, something you said, I mean, I'm just going to be honest here, is I think maybe one of the reasons why we want to focus so much on the heroic of these characters is because we want to see ourselves in that person. Yeah. You know, none of us really wants to see ourselves in the, you know, the the, the lowest of low of someone's life. I mean, we we recognize, for example, you used the example of David and, and Bathsheba and the lust, but we want to be about, well, we tell the story about David and he slay the giant, you know, and we want to talk about how we relate to that story. And so I think, again, this goes back to some of the conversation we've already had, but just men, you know, going to a deeper place, you know, we shy away from that. And so we want to lean on the heroic side of that story. We want to lean on the strength of Samson. You know, we want to lean on, you know, the faith of Moses to lead and to do what he did rather than, you know, those other subtle kind of um, deficiencies where they had to just fully rely on God because we know that we have to be there sometimes, but we don't want to go there. So and anyway, part of it maybe may, that's just part me, of but. it may simply be too. 
we just don't actually know all of their stories all that yeah, well. Uh, We've sort 100%. of grown up in a Sunday school environment where we yeah. got the highlights. Yeah. And even as adults, myself included, it's real yeah. easy to go, you know, David, David and Bathsheba. Yeah. You know, David, David and Goliath. But we yeah. have two whole books, really more, that are yeah. just on this life of David. We know more about yeah. David than any other character in the Bible. We have yeah. more of his story. And yeah. to a degree, it's very strange literature for the ancient world because we know more about yeah. what David was thinking and yeah. motivating him. Yeah. We have the Psalms to read into it. But how many of us have really taken the time to really work through who David was? And well, I think I, if we do, yeah. that's when we start to realize, oh, there's actually a lot more yeah. here. And And what you get out of it is I can have those moments of courageous, yeah. heroic faith that David had but I'm kidding myself if I think I can do it without yeah. going through the same struggles and temptations yeah. and trials and lessons. If yeah. I don't need those same things, Nate, David yeah. needed to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, I have some questions on David. We'll talk to him when we get. Yeah, we we'll got a whole chapter coming. Yeah. Up, so. But I will say this though. I mean, there is an underlying theme throughout the entirety of the book, and it's this idea and this formation of character. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you could pick up on that. I think every book, all books are really about multiple things. There's yeah. the thing the book is about. Yeah. And then there's usually, if you sit with it long enough, there's yeah. something beneath the surface there that's yeah. really holding it together. Yeah. And for me, that really is this question of, we don't talk a whole lot these days about yeah. character formation. Yep. Um, we don't talk about how we just become better. How do we improve our character? This talk of virtue that was so common in church history is really pretty absent today. Yeah. And so most of us do exactly what we just, we talked about. We idolize being who we could be, and then yeah. we have no path for getting there, and we get yeah. frustrated that we're yeah. not. Yeah. Um, and so really the book is, in some ways I say at the end of the book, like even if you throw away the five instincts and think, I made that up, or you don't care about Shakespeare, that's silly. If you read the book and yeah. did nothing else but come away saying, I want to think more deeply about what's motivating me, yeah. and I want to figure out how yeah. I put in place intentional practices of yeah. faith yeah. that will guide that instinct towards something good, not destructive. This yeah. is really a path of character formation. If you yeah. walk away just intrigued by that possibility, I think the book's done what I hope yeah. it does. Yeah. Well, and just to wrap up this specific conversation, you use this analogy about C.S. Lewis and the ship. Yeah. So tell us that. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. I know I've written yeah. with Kinsman on Well, and you as also, too, you, so. you sail, so I'm sure yeah. that... You know, and you can talk a little bit about that. But sure, yeah. recently we actually we had the opportunity to do some of the photo shoot for Kinsman and I got to be out there on the sailboat and it, it was a neat experience. Yeah. I was and and you know, obviously this isn't a sailing community around here much. We do have some great lakes. Um, but just in reading that and then being out on the ship, you know, because most men don't go on ships these days where yeah, they're yeah. experiencing that. But I love I love that analogy. Yeah, so, so. I get this analogy from uh, from C.S. Lewis, who yeah. basically says that when it comes to talking about morality, so what is good, what's bad, which really is a question about character. Yeah. Character is the yeah. ability to discern and to practice what is good. Yeah. Uh, that, that there are two questions we should be asking about morality. The kind yeah. of pre-question he says is we've got to determine what we're aiming at. Right. So we're not going to become moral people if we don't have a definition of what morality is. Yep. So that's his first one. And he uses the uh, illustration of a fleet of ships, think naval vessels, who are leaving one port and crossing an ocean to make it to a distant port. That yep. distant port is, port, uh, port is the objective, right? That's yep. the thing they're aiming at. And he says the two questions that are necessary is, one, they have to be able to coordinate their movements amongst one another in yep. such a way that they're not constantly colliding. If a yep. set of ships leave together and they don't talk to each other— or they don't share a common goal, they're just going to crash into one another. They're not going to make their destination. Yeah. 
And Lewis specifically says, and I think he was ahead of his time because it's even more true now, that this is the area that our culture tends to focus on. This is the toxic masculinity conversation the culture's having. It's the conversation about how men should behave as fathers and as husbands and in workplaces and in church, Uh, the kinds of responsibilities men should bear, the types of leadership men should bear. All of these are these external responsibilities. Who should we be in relationship to other people? And Lewis is saying that is a fundamental question that we have to get right. Right. Yeah. But Lewis says the second question is, is the ship in good enough working condition yeah. that the ship can pull off the maneuvers that it's expected in coordinating with others? And so yeah. he says if they have a ship with a shoddy rudder, yeah. they may have all the right plans and all the right coordination. But if you can't steer your ship like you want to, yeah. you're not going to be able to avoid running into each other yeah. and sink all the same. Yeah. And the point he's making is that we've got to understand how to live in relationship to one another. But we also have to have the skill set necessary to maintain our own vessels so that we can carry out the moves that are expected of us. So we have to be the kind of men who have the internal capacity of character to be good fathers, to love wives and be faithful, to bear responsibility within culture without just always being defensive or walking away, to be able to bear responsibility in churches and in communities, all those things the world expects of us. We won't be able to do them if we don't first develop the kind of internal personal character and anybody who's owned a boat uh doesn't matter if it's a sailboat or not will tell you the joke is right the the two best days of boat ownership is the day you bought the boat and the day you sold the boat right because if you own a boat you know how much maintenance goes in Um, oh yeah my boat sits in a slip in the water and i think every moment of every day mother nature is trying to sink that thing and take (laughs) it to the bottom and you're constantly having to clean it and maintenance and check every bolt and screw and every line and make sure we pull it out every couple years and repaint the bottom so it doesn't have growth and it's just constant maintenance to keep that boat functional and that's what this book is trying to do as well is say how do we do that character work internally So that we can live up to our expectations, we can live up to the expectations of the communities we're a part of, that we can make that distant port, this thing we're aiming at, in this case, Christ-likeness, we're going to have to really know our own ship well. And what that also means is not everybody has the same ship. You know, you come with certain family past realities, you come with certain biological realities, you come with certain responsibilities of career and vocation and family, you come with your own dispositions, uh, your own faith history. Uh, We share a lot as men, and a lot of those things overlap. But it doesn't matter that I generally know about boats. What I really need to know is that I know, and anybody who owns a boat or sail will know, what really matters, do you know that boat? Do you know how it handles in certain conditions? Do you know how it handles whenever something's broke? Do you know how to get it from one place to another if there's no wind or too much wind? Or That's the work we're talking about. It's not abstract, cultural, who men should be work. It's really specific I know when it's a certain temperature, my boat condenses and I end up with water in the bilge and I've got to make sure I have a vent open. I know that boat and the maintenance that's required for it. That's the kind of work we're talking about for each of us as men too. And that's, again, Lewis, I draw that from. No, it's it's great. Well, I mean, I guess I have two things just to kind of wrap up this section of the conversation is from a, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And so I want to know from the get-go, is it achievable? You know, is it achievable for us to be able to do these things that you're talking about and just to piggyback on what you said about knowing our own ship, I think, I think it's really a series of deep, hard questions that we have to ask ourselves as men, or even if we have people in our lives, our wife, family, close friends, where we can ask those questions of ourselves to others to say, Hey, this is something I'm trying to 
learn a little bit more about myself. Help me understand this a little bit more. Because I think men need to have a space too where they can have those conversations with others because we can, we can be deceitful above all else about our own selves, right? And so I think part of that understanding is asking questions of other people that know us really, really well. But I do want to know, is it achievable? Yeah. So it's, I think it's, here's the way I would say it. I, I don't think there's a, like uh, a ribbon at some point you get where it's like, congratulations, right. Peter. Like you've now officially yeah. become a man. Like here's the ribbon. You've earned all the necessary character <laughs> traits. Uh, because part of what the book is also saying is those things change. Like the sure. impulse and the instinct that drives you now may not be yeah. the same one 20 years from now, may yeah. not be the same one five years from now. Right. You may hit a season in life where you face significant loss or frustration or challenges yeah. and every the ground underneath you may shift and you yeah. find yourself in a new place. So what I do think is achievable is the church has handed us this long tradition of men before us. This is yeah. Hebrews, Hebrews 11 language, this great cloud of witnesses of yeah. people who have lived through all sorts of realities yeah. and have found a way to be faithful to God and to sense that he's faithful to them in the midst of it and to live into moments that are heroic. Yeah. So what is achievable is we can learn how we go about this work. Yeah. We can learn the necessary skill set to continually yep. be growing in Christ likeness, to yep. feel like we have the skill set and the ability, the objectivity with ourselves yep. to face those things when they come. Doesn't yep. mean we ever reach a final moment where, hey, we've done it. We're now right. the all-encompassing masculine man and everything yep. is secured. It'll it'll be unsecure two <laughs> two hours later. But we can start to feel like as men. Yep. I have enough perspective about myself. Yeah. I know the places I can turn. I've built the right relationships. I've yeah. got some some guideposts, some practices in my life that can steady me through these seasons. Yeah. That we, I think we can start to yeah. build confidence to say, I don't have to live in the malaise. I don't have to live yeah. in the defensiveness or the disillusionment. There's a better way to live that could sustain me through a whole sure. lifetime. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, and it's encouraging too, because I, you know, speaking to the sovereignty of God, it's not by accident that we live in the time in which we live. And so I think that's that's a hope too, an encouragement. But it means it's different for us in the way in which we approach that, given our current day and time and culture. But we have, you know, we have the resource, resources available to us if we're wanting to tap into them. Yeah. But it starts with looking. I think right that's right. And first. what's the alternative? Just yeah. be frustrated all the time. That's right. <laughs> not live up to even your own expectations. Yeah. Like at some point, the pain of of not growing as a man is just greater than the pain that's required to get yeah. better, and it's just yeah. worth it. For yeah. the people you love most, for yourself, yeah. for the things God's called you to, it's just worth it. Yeah, I agree. That I gets agree. us into the instincts. So that's the introduction. So the next one is uh, the first one, Cain, yeah. and uh, the instinct of sarcasm. Yeah, I love sarcasm. been listening to the pastor writer podcast just wanted to say thanks again for those of you who have checked out the book we're running this special series of conversations up until the book's launch on march 1st if you're interested in learning more the best way to do it is the five masculine instincts.com there's an online assessment you can take there that'll help you start thinking about those five instincts see maybe which ones are most prevalent in your life there's also some special pre-order bonuses we're running right now so check those out as well as some additional articles and resources and endorsements information about the book. There's a couple places that are actually running it as a pre-sale discount. So you might check those out as well too. And if you would be willing to pre-order a book, it would mean the world to me. It's the best way to be able to help not just uh, the book itself, but also the work I do on this podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.